to another episode of the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk to the experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and others to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps we can take in the effort to shift towards a healthier lifestyle. My name is Stephanie Nishi, and today I am joined by Kate McGooey-Smith to talk about her life-changing story, psychological flexibility, and her insights related to behavioral change around plant-based eating. Faced with a very rare, no-cause, no-cure terminal diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension, described as high blood pressure in the pulmonary arteries of the lungs, along with type 2 diabetes, Kate McGooey-Smith became legally blind and on continuous oxygen within months. Dizzy and fainting spells left this mother of three school-aged children out of work, immobilized, and recording goodbye stories to her kids, who were unknowingly destined to live without her within two to five years. Find out how Kate, a former registered nurse and a clinically trained social work therapist, became more psychologically flexible to turn this imposed tragedy into triumph, regaining her sight, reducing her blood sugar to no longer having diabetes, and even reversing her fatal disease from level three to level one. Most importantly, giving her now adult children the legacy of better health. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. You have a remarkable life experience and a powerful story and message, including, as was mentioned in your introduction, being able to reverse your blindness, type 2 diabetes, and improve your disease diagnosis. Now, could you share a bit more about yourself and your story and how this all came to be? Well... Thanks, Steph. I'm really glad to be here with you and and the audience because I know that this will, uh, I'm sure, touch the hearts and minds of lots of people because there are a lot of people who are going through a lot of different degrees of suffering or maybe know a family member that they're witnessing, which is also incredibly painful to be a witness to. Um, I was very busy, a mom of three. And, uh, you know, my whiteboard was full of different activities and, and I was working full time. I was actually responsible for starting and supervising a counseling program for an entire school board from pre-kindergarten to grade 12. So I did that. And I also had a small private practice and I was like many parents, homework helpers. Um, and, uh, so I was just motoring along. I woke up every day really excited to start the day, really loved what I was doing. And, um, you know, things were going well, my kids were all in, uh, you know, grade school, and one was just going to be entering like sort of part of high school. And so, you know, it was just a very hectic time um, that demands a lot of physical demand to it and and Mm -hmm. emotional and psychological demand, which every parent can relate to. And so I've noticed, though, that I was getting increasing swelling around my legs and abdomen, and I found I was getting took me longer to get dressed. And um, 
I had gone to an all girls school when I was in high school and we got penalized if we didn't get dressed fast in gym classes and stuff like that. That meant penalized meant that we had to run around the track many more times. So I was really used to being a pretty speedy dresser in the morning, jumping in the shower and then jumping out and getting dressed and on the way and um, having breakfast with the kids and then getting going. And I just found I was like, really getting almost I was lethargic almost in the morning like just really it was more like molasses than um, tap water that I was you know just sort of going through the motions and it seemed to be getting harder and harder and I just put it down to everything that was going in my life uh, working on a program that was ever expanding because I had 12 counselors to supervise and I've been building the program up and the demands of all my kids and, and making sure that they had you know, parenting is, is a vocation to me. And so I was really busy with that as well. And, um, and I was noticing that I was also going to bed earlier and earlier. Like I almost wanted to beat the kids to bed because <laughs> I was so tired. And then the weekend seemed to be more extended. I was in my pajamas a lot longer. I ended up having to have to afternoon naps. It was kind of like, that's how I was kind of plugging my energy. I was not into energy drinks and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I was doing that. And I was actually following, we had been following for a number of years, a vegetarian diet. And, um, and, but the swelling got so bad, I literally um, could hardly, you know, sit down on a toilet. That's how much I had left. I kept thinking, it'll just get better, it'll get better, which I think a lot of us, we talk ourselves out of it. A Mm -hmm. lot of moms, you know, our burners, our stovetop burners are full and our pots to the side. And so it's like, I knew everybody else's needs and wants, but didn't really think about my own. That was very secondary. Um, and translation that was last. And uh, so I finally ended up going into acute care and they did testing and acute care was kind of like a mini hospital in our community. And they did testing and discovered that I had type two diabetes. And they also discovered that there was something kind of strange going on with my heart, but they weren't sure. So I was given two weeks off to kind of get my act together around the diabetes, which I really appreciated. And most of the times I was just like, I get up to just go to the bathroom and I fall back to sleep in bed. And I was, but one of the things I reached out for was uh, Neil Bernard's from Physicians Committee for Responsible Mm -hmm. Medicine about diabetes And it sort of really opened my eyes. I'm a a former nurse, worked in the operating room bedside community. And so much so like, you know, heal thyself, that kind of goes to the wayside again, when you're other focused, and you're trying to serve others. And so I really started, I had ended up having an A1C of 15.1. And that's how much I had really ignored. And it's amazing that I could push myself through when you think, Um, A lot of fatigue is associated with diabetes, Um, you know, really the exhaustion, having to get up and pee and that kind of thing. And so um, I started following Neil Bernard's work and um, sort of went, okay, I've just got to really take this seriously. And I've got to, I didn't like all the other alternatives has made the most sense to me. I really like the evidence-based science behind it. I didn't want to take any risks. I didn't want to do something faddish. 
And this definitely was not a fad. It was based on science and they had had really good results. And he talked about the fact that they've known how to do this for well over 75, you know, 80 years and people still don't do it. Right. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to really take this seriously because there was also diabetes history in my family and heart disease as well. So um, went ahead and started following that. And in the meantime, they started to do an investigation where I had to go and see um, a heart specialist. And they had done um, uh, looking at, in fact, I still remember uh, they did an x-ray of looking at my heart and everything. And uh, I, my husband went and got a coffee. I'm not a coffee drinker at all, but he slipped out because it was like, you know, a couple hours that you, uh, you wait in the waiting room and then you do the proceed, you know, procedure and everything. And when he came back, um, he could see my legs are shaking because the um, radiologist had come in and said, uh, and I ended up backing up against the wall because he looked so scared himself. Mm. And he goes like, you need to go to the doctor like immediately. Like this is no fooling around. You've got something seriously wrong with your heart. And I just remember backing up against the walls thinking I was going to collapse and my legs were shaking and everything. And, and so um, we went immediately. If, yes. It was like, you know, you're wondering what is it? What is it? Um, and it's not like nice surprises door number one, two or three. It's mm-hmm. like, what could this be? Cause I know that no radiologist comes out and does this to patients having been my nursing background and everything. This is very unusual, very exceptional. And so I ended up going to a heart specialist and he was asking me all sorts of questions. Like if I had traveled and all these kind of things and, and I hadn't and, um, you know, I joke that I'd gone to Idaho, but no, that's not considered too foreign. <laughs> and so, and, and had I taken any kind of um, weight loss kind of drugs, because I was probably about 100, over 120 pounds overweight. And I had always struggled with that. I'd been exercising, I'd gone to curves, that gym thing. And I was trying to really watch what I was eating, but I was eating a vegetarian diet, which still includes cheese which we know is very high in fat. I didn't know that at the time. I thought I was doing the right thing to cut out meat. And, um, and uh, so he said, hmm, you know, they decided to send me to another specialist, a sleep specialist. And I found out I had also sleep apnea. So it was like, is there anything more that can happen to me? And she came the second time she came to see me, they had done, decided to run the tests again. And she said, uh, she brought me in and I thought it was kind of strange because she was kind of going over my whole file and I just got this really bad feeling. And I was like, I didn't want to believe like there's something, what, why is she doing this? And uh, she said, I'm sorry to tell you, but I'm provisionally diagnosing you with pulmonary arterial hypertension. And she said, you have, you know, up to two to five years to live. And uh, this was like, we were just like, so shocked. And she said, now I'm going to have you wait in the, the waiting room. She said, I can't believe that you've even functioned, been able to even work. And I can remember a couple of times when I was at the, um, like reaching down to pick up copies from a photocopier, you know, the really big photocopy machines. And I'd feel a little lightheaded and I'd think, oh, maybe it's like 
it's getting close to lunch or something and I better check um, what's going on, my blood sugars or whatever. And so, so turned when out was this, this was in, I ended up having to, what they do is because it's a very serious diagnosis. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very rare one. It's um, two to four in a million. Uh, get this disease. And what it is, is when it says pulmonary, that's the lungs, arterial, the arteries, pulmonary arteries, um, and hypertension. Now people think of normal hypertension Mm -hmm. that they might see with uh, like, you know, they're high, they have high blood pressure. In fact, you have very low blood pressure with this. And, um, and it is, so it's, high blood pressure in the pulmonary arteries of the lungs. And so what it means is your body, well, it's trying to get this nice oxygenated blood that has to go through the heart to get to become, uh, and then take from the heart, go into the lungs to get oxygenated and then come back over. I was not able to have the really good blood flow. I also had severe right-sided heart failure. So it was really hard for my blood to get over over that crest that into the second valve and go into the lungs and get refreshed with new oxygenated blood and come back. So that's why you end up having like blood pressure 90 over 60. So you can imagine you're very weak, yet subject to dizziness, fainting, those kind of things. And, um, and so what they have to do because the drugs that they'll use, there's no cause or no cure for this. So they have no idea. It's called idiopathic. I say even the idiots don't know. <laughs> you know. I have to find a joke in it. And, and so there's no explanation for it other than it happens to people. And so these are the cards I was dealt. And um, it must so have what been, they... Oh, yeah. Sorry, it must have been such a shock to receive the news, especially the two to five years. When was this that you received this news just to put I received it it. probably in November of 2007. And I remember still we were sitting in the a very full waiting room. Mm -hmm. So my husband and I couldn't even sit together after we got just got the news. Oh my god. And this lady was beside me. And she started talking to me, you know how people talk on a train and she started Mm -hmm. talking about her son how she was worried about him because he didn't have a direction in life for any purpose. And I remember thinking, I really want to scream right now and say, I've just been told I'm not going to see my kids live very long. Like I'm not going to see them, you know, get past grade school. I'm not going to see them ever have a boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm not going to see them at any of this stuff. And I just wanted to scream. And I thought, no, Maybe my training came in yet. I thought, no, I don't want to upset ever the people. So I'll just hang in there. And I just probably looked very vaguely, just smiling at her, like nodding and doing the counselor type of thing, listening. But I really wanted to scream. And when, because she was filling out the paperwork for me, to, she goes, you have to go on immediate disability. Like you cannot function. You cannot work. This is so dangerous. And um, so she, that's what was happening. And then we went out into the parking lot and that's when we finally allowed ourselves in the sanctity of our own car to just cry and cry. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly I suddenly thought we were just like so shocked. We were holding each other crying and everything. Like, how is this possible? I, you know, I've tried to, what I thought I was doing pretty well. And I, you know, I was really doing well with my diabetes. In fact, I had taken it from 
15.1 to, to below seven. That's huge. Yeah. In just a couple, a few months, actually. So I was like, you know, how could this happen? Like all I've done my whole life is serve other people as a nurse and then as a, a clinically trained social worker, as a therapist. And I was like, this doesn't seem very fair. And, um, and so just really crying. And then all of a sudden I said to my husband, I said, oh, you know what? We're having to pay for this because oh, yeah. we're in this paid parking lot. And it's very expensive. Most hospital parking mm-hmm. lots are extremely expensive. And so I said, we better leave. And I said, but can you drive? <laughs> you know, are you okay to drive? And so he said, yeah, I can, I can manage it. And then we pulled over somewhere. We got out of there. We did start laughing about that because the practicality of us kicked in and being frugal parents with, with three <laughs> kids to raise, we were like, yeah, okay. And then we pulled over and cried again before we could get home. And so that was really painful. And then I was referred to a uh, pulmonologist um, who is a specialist in this area of idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. And I had to go undergo a right heart catheterization, Mm. which some people won't know, but it's a procedure that is not a pleasant one. You're in an operating room um, and the intensive care is standing by with a bed for you in case something goes wrong. And you are put, you're awake during this procedure and uh, you have an IV open to you. And, and what they do is they put a sort of a, a wire type um, radiology kind of uh, scope through your carotid artery down into the chambers of your heart, into your lungs. And you're awake during this whole thing. And um, intense. Yeah. So you're staying very, very still because you don't want to move. And then they're doing tests to see, do you really have this? Because they have to know before they give you these very strong toxic drugs. Um, and because it would be very first unethical, but it would be also in life endangering if you were given wrong drugs for your, for your disease. And so they also tested me at that time by putting nitric oxide in my body to see if I would respond to it. Because nitric oxide is a vasodilator. So it kind of opens the, the v- blood vessels up, which would help blood flow mm-hmm. and help oxygen get to all parts of my body. And unfortunately, I responded um, not positively, but negatively to that. It had no response on me. And um, so they started me on a very basic, what we call a level one drug. There, there are four levels to pulmonary hypertension. And the fourth is obviously the worst. It goes up um, by way of, you know, and the fifth is you're in the ground, you know, or shattered to the, to the winds. Um, so I was actually a level three out of four uh, wow. when I was finally diagnosed. And so the first level drug they put you on, which is kind of standard, is sedanafil, which people would know by its trade name, Viagra. Mm-hmm. And... It's not, I really feel for men. Um, I'm not sure, you know, on a, with a female, I know I felt like I had, it sounded like the very same symptoms that men have flu like symptoms when they use that little blue pill, flu like symptoms, you, you know, which isn't a nice feeling. And, um, you know, 
And Viagra was actually discovered as a heart drug, as a vasodilator. Mm -hmm. And then they found out it had really sort of interesting side effects for men (laughs) who are on it. So it actually reduced, thanks to sex, it reduced the cost (laughs) of the medication, which is always helpful. Um, And then I ended up, they did piggyback drugs on top of that. And I was also part of a, a clinical trial. But within months, I was left blind. And when I went to my retinologist, he said, you know, Kate, you have a, I said, what can I do? And he said, well, Kate, the choice is yours. Um, It's your eyes or your lungs. What do you choose? And I honestly, it was a second that I answered back. I'll choose, you know, my lungs because I knew I can hug my kids with my lungs. Um, You know, like I need my lungs around to be able to hug them. And if I couldn't see them, that was okay. I mean, you know, I, I would rather be able to hug them than not be able to, to be here to do yeah, that. The senses can yeah. come into play. And so- yeah, because these drugs are really to, this is a case where it's not about trying to find a cure. I mean, I think they're still working on that. I'm not trying to suggest that they're not trying to do their due diligence that way and take it seriously, but it is very rare. Um, and it, but it's really about um, trying to pr- prolong your life, and there is a danger to that. And the reason I say that is that anybody who's worked with the medical profession knows we have one all these wonderful specialties, right? We have someone who's like my pulmonologist is going to look after your lungs, and we have the eye doctor is going to look after your eyes, and you have someone internal medicine might look after your kidneys or your liver. And those kind of things and the heart doctor looking after your heart. And that's wonderful. But the problem is, guess what? It's really left to us to put it all together. Because, you know, many of these these men and women are really great body mechanics. Sometimes they're not whole person practitioners. And it becomes our responsibility to really... That's where our advocacy and partnership in our healthcare has to come in place. And that's why I found it so empowering because there I am blind. I really had to give up all my professional library, which I was happy. Mm. I ended up donating it to a domestic violence shelter staff group so that they could benefit from them. I mean, I had like a hundred plus books and it was just like my life totally disappeared uh, because I had to face that. I might never be able to go back to work or anything like that. And that my number one focus had to be on my taking care of myself so I could take care of my kids and be a partner to my husband. And that became my number one focus. That's, and so, you know, I was sharing with you that I do something called the ACT matrix, Mm -hmm. which is about creating psychological flexibility. And it really fits nicely with this whole plant-based lifestyle, which I found I was actually doing. I just didn't realize it at the time until I I ended up having this training. And I, I look back and I think I was doing that. Just a quick pause. Psychological flexibility was a relatively new term to me. So to better understand it, I found a definition published in the scientific peer-reviewed journal called Frontiers in Psychology, where psychological flexibility was defined as being in contact with the present moment, fully aware of emotions, sensations, and thoughts. 
welcoming them, including the undesired ones, and moving in a pattern of behavior in the service of chosen values. In simpler words, this means accepting our own thoughts and emotions and acting on long-term values rather than short-term impulses, thoughts, and feelings that are often linked to experiential avoidance and a way to control unwanted inner events and thoughts. If you would like a visual of the quadrant and what these four squares represent that Kate mentioned and is going to describe, an image of it will be shared on the Plant-Based Canada Instagram and Facebook, also known as Meta, page with the notification for the release of this episode. If you would like to hear more from Kate, check out our talk from the 2021 Plant-Based Canada Conference, which is available on the Plant-Based Canada YouTube channel and the link will be provided in the show notes of this episode. And now, back to Kate. This training is as simple if anybody has a piece of paper out there. If you just put the piece of paper down and you draw a line from the top of the page to the bottom, and then to the right, and halfway in the middle, to the right, to the left, you'll have C4 equal squares. So in the bottom right-hand square... What I talk about is I think about what's really important to me. What's my North Star? What do I value? So who's really important to me? My husband, my kids, they're really, really important to me. They're in my lifeboat. And, um, you know, and there's certainly other people that are important, but these are the people that I really, you know, I wanted to sail through life Mm -hmm. with. And then I think about what values I'd attach that, what really matters to me. And it would be, I wanted to promise, I said to my kids, they didn't know, they knew I was sick. They could see it for sure because I wasn't able to get up the stairs as much. We lived in a two-story house. I would sometimes have to crawl up the stairs oh my um, depending on the day, time of day if how level of exhaustion I was. Mm-hmm. Also, they obviously saw my sight uh, to the point where there I was wearing oxygen on my back, had a white cane in my hand. You know, I looked like the modern day elephant man. Right. And that's pretty hard for kids in grade school because, you know, they don't mind people being a little different, but being too different. I didn't look like any moms that they ever saw. And so that's pretty scary. And so I asked them to not look on the internet. I mean, because obviously all the kids are pretty savvy about, and I said, I will, I promise you, I'll answer any questions you have. Um, but we want to be able to answer them for you because the internet does not always have reliable information. And I know they would learn there that I had a very limited time to live. And I felt that I approached it kind of like sex education. It's really important for me. That was one of my values that I wanted to keep my children's innocence in a sense until, you know, and uh, also respect when they were ready. So I sort of took it like as sex education, you know, as kids get curious about stuff, you introduce and you talk to them openly about stuff, but you don't impose it on them. You allow them to sort of figure it out in their journey as they're going along. But knowing that we can have an open conversation about it at any time, you can ask me anything at any time and I won't be upset or anything. So I promised my kids two things. I said, you know, I want to tell, I'm going to try to take worry away from you. That was really important to me because love and kindness is another thing that I value. And I said, I want to take worry away from you so that you never have to think I gave up in any way to get better. So I'm trying to promise you that I will try to get as well as possible 
and do everything I can to get as well as possible so that you never have to wonder because I want to be here with, I want to be really well with you and, you know, be your mom and be a part of your life. And then the other thing I said is, I also know that I have a contribution to make. I don't know what it'll look like. Might be as simple as a smile, might be as simple as a thank you. It might be, but it might be bigger. But I know that I have a responsibility, no matter what I've been given in life, to try to make a contribution. Because I wanted to really role model for them for as long as I was alive that, you know what? None of us has an excuse that we can't contribute some way to the betterment of the world. And that was also another really important service to others was a really important value of mine. So that's in that bottom right-hand part that we talk about who's important to you and what matters. And this is what's going on inside of our minds. And then, you know, I had to also face, I moved over to the bottom left of that matrix. And we call that the yucky stuff, the difficult thoughts, painful feelings, even bodily sensations. So I had to face that, guess what? There were times I felt really sad, uh, really in despair, maybe isolated. Because a lot of people, when they hear someone's become sick like this, they really don't know what to say. Or they're afraid if they say something, well, you're going to make the person cry or they're going to cry. And sometimes it's out of really totally, if they're really trying to be deeply honest with themselves, it's often out of self-protection for themselves. You know, we don't, we don't like to be in pain. None of us do. It's pretty natural. We want to get relief from pain. So when we have pain kind of imposed on us by way of like, wow, we've heard this horrible story or, you know, or, or I know this person and I, what? They were just fine a month ago. How come now they're really sick? It's really frightening. And so that fear can drive us to avoid people and, and not be there for them. That's and hard for those people it's, though. Yeah. It's very hard for, for like myself and my mm-hmm. family because that's what happened. We were, I was part of a Catholic school board where the slogan was leave not one heart behind. I finally had to joke. They didn't just leave my heart. They left everything. behind. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have people reach out. I didn't have people ask concern. I didn't ask, have people. And my kids picked up on that. Like no one asked them. Uh, it was just like, there was this wall. And, you know, we hide kind of behind the kind of HR response, like you're not supposed to contact anyone who's on leave. So therefore, it's like almost like it gives, it condones isolation and silence, unfortunately, when we have those kind of policies. Instead of even saying we'll assign someone who can be the contact person and let them know, hey, we care about you, we're here, we're, you know, we're throwing a lifeline out to you, what can we do to help? I didn't receive any of that. I would have been that person who was encouraging other people to do it. But I, you know, and that was the irony, but I didn't receive it myself. And that was kind of devastating um, on more than one occasion. I mean, it felt really devastating at first. It felt truly abandonment to be in a small community where people know you from church, from your work at school, like because it was a Catholic school as well. Mm-hmm. Um and I felt for my kids as well, like that they never had a teacher say, hey, are you okay or whatever. Now, of course, I wasn't going to go around advertising to my employer 
what the degree of what was wrong with me and how serious it was because I didn't want to have that imposed on my kids or them be confronted with it, you know, in that way when they're not ready. However, on the same hand, to not have anything is very, very sad. And I had, like I still say, like occasionally something would happen, but it was very rare. So it was really not like a Hallmark movie that mm. people gather around and there's, you know, um, loads of fish. food coming in or all that kind of thing. In fact, I reached out to the person who is the director of religious ed and said to them, she, she had called me about something and she said, so how are you doing? I said, well, you know, I'm hanging in there. I'm not doing too well. And I, and she said, well, is there anything I can do? I said, yeah, I really appreciate it. Maybe some prayers could be said. And she goes, oh, I don't think I can do that. Why not? And yeah, don't know. She didn't want to say anything. Mm. They were having a, a group meeting and she didn't want to say anything. And so like, even sometimes when you have the courage to ask, although I've had what I call dot dots that have led to this path. And what I mean by that is there, I remember when my first child, my oldest child, and I were going through mommy and, and baby kind of uh, daycare kind of situation where we'd come to a mom's group. And we had a presenter that day. What they did is you would all take turns looking after the kids and then someone would get together with the moms and maybe present something, a topic or whatever, or do an activity. And this woman had come in and I remember it was just so powerful to me. She was a mother of a child that was dying in hospital. And it had been a fairly prolonged, I think the child had had cancer. So it was a fairly prolonged illness that she had gone through. And this time she knew that her child was not going to make it through the night kind of thing. So she, she had her list about of 10 people. She called every single person on the list. They each of her turned her down different reasons. Oh, I'm busy shopping or I can't do it. I can't, you know, nobody and finally, she got to the 10th person, and they were willing to come and look after other children so she could be with her dying child. And the person I thought of her perseverance and her, her lack of bitterness and um, just, you know, sharing it, like being having the courage to share that with us, and that she didn't personalize that to, I'm not a worthwhile person. I'm not enough because somebody wouldn't come forward. It's um, important. Just amazing. And so I've hold, held on, like, you know, when we think, have I been prepared for this journey? And I think of that's an example that helped prepare me for my journey. And then another one was when I was just doing my bachelor's degree at University of Waterloo. I did it in psychology and social development studies. And I don't know why, but this has stood out. And I, it, to me, it's another dot that kind of has helped me in this journey is that it was a, a study in which they looked at people who were in, like who were quadriplegics or paraplegics. And they obviously had to have care of other people around them. And all of them, what they had in common is none of them had, were any remotely responsible for their accident. You know, some people have been hit or something. It wasn't like they were drinking and driving. Well, kind of you got what you deserved, you know, like it wasn't like that at all. They were just totally innocent. And then they had suffered this injury. And what was interesting is that 
over time, as people cared for them and had to be a part of their care team, like family members and friends and stuff like that, that they began to express resentment toward the person with the disability and would make comments like, well, if only you weren't there, like only, you know, why, you know, why couldn't you have done this differently? Why couldn't, and they started blaming the person with the disability because of their own fatigue in caregiving. So, and it was a really, like, I just really held on to that study and I carried it forward when I was going through this, recognizing that there'll be people who will like, you know, well, look, she's overweight. So she causes, well, it wasn't, Overweight didn't cause this, didn't help it, but it didn't cause it. And, um, you know, and so people have a tendency to want to just like someone who's been raped or harmed or assaulted or something like, well, what were you doing? What did you wear? How did you, we want to somehow look. So for two reasons, I think one, it makes us be able to relinquish any kind of sense of responsibility or compassion to give. Like, I don't, why should it be my problem in any way? And then the other one is like, if I can blame the person that happens to, then I can just say, well, you know, that'll never happen to me. I get sort of a reassurance of my fear that won't happen to me because I won't do what they did. And so, you know, those things, those kind of dots along the way can be really helpful. Like I found they were helpful in me still persevering with my illness and that kind of thing. Is this uh, how your interest in psychological flexibility and this grid with the four quadrants came into play before? I know. Yes, I think as I, as I, yes, as I went along, like when I started to face all that yucky stuff I had, I realized those are just thoughts or feelings. They don't have to dictate. They don't have to, thoughts do not have to dictate what we do. They can just sort of have a willingness to say they exist and that's okay. In the sense of like, I don't want them to exist They're unwanted experiences for sure. I'm not a glutton for punishment or anything. However, I don't have to be defined by them and I don't have to be directed by them. I can say they're there. Okay. So now how can I kind of like if I was in a car and I turned on the radio and it was the kind of music I couldn't stand. Maybe it was like really hard metal rock. And it was playing at 10 out of 10. I can turn the volume down. But that music, I can't change the channel. And so we can't change the channel of our thoughts or feelings. They're just going to show up, whether we like it or not. But I can turn the volume down. I don't have to end up saying, this is what's going to define me. This is what's going to direct me. I can say they exist, turning the volume down, and then continue getting on with my life. So I had to look at behaviors that would, you know, there are, are some away behaviors, we call them. And these are to get relief from the pain. And they're perfectly natural. They're not right or wrong or bad or good. They're just natural. So I might Netflix binge just to get, you know, and I might say today, because I'm feeling pretty overwhelmed, I don't want to have to solve a crime. So don't give me a <laughs> murder mystery. I don't want to have to learn anything. So don't, I don't want to play a documentary. I just want some mind candy that so it's a comedy. I don't have to think about it and I can laugh. And so I can do those kind of things or I can exercise, uh, go for a walk. You know, these are all things I can do for a week. I could overeat and comfort myself, which a lot of people can relate to. Like, you know, I just automatically almost go autopilot sometimes. 
And just being aware of that, like, hey, I might reach for that bag of potato chips or whatever it is that I might find comfort in, or that rich dessert or that chocolate bar. And it's just on autopilot, like, oh, that'll give me almost immediate comfort. And that's a natural thing that we want to avoid the pain. But then it took me to that last quadrant in the upper right. And these are behaviors that we do according to who and what's important to us, according to our values and what we, what, who are the people that are really important to us and what really matters to us. And so these are committed actions. So now then I went, hmm, that Netflix binging, like sometimes I'm taking up a lot of time in my day with it. So maybe I'm going to just focus on watching Netflix while I'm exercising on bike, you know? And so I'm kind of rewarding myself for doing the exercise. Even Oprah doesn't like exercise Mm -hmm. and she can't get, find anybody else, even how rich she is. She can't find somebody who can exercise for her. So it's like, you still got to do it. So, Hey, I could do that. I could call up someone and see how they're doing and see what's happening. So for example, I started a support group, a peer support group, for pulmonary arterial hypertension patients. And uh, we did that for well over five years, my husband and I was really glad to be able to reach out and support the community that way. I still submit, for example, something that's really important to me as a way of serving others is I submit oil-free whole plant-based recipes to phacanada.com. And there's lots of recipes on there. They're also low in salt. So that really helps a lot of people or have actually no salt in them. So I do that on a monthly basis. And I have for now years, I lost track how many years it's been that I submit those every month. You have, so, it seems been very involved in the community with Fork Smart. I believe you've done summits in the past, yes, which brought yes. people together. Yeah. But- ForkSmart.org is my original organization that I formed and it, it started out really because I was saving up for a lung transplant, that's the only kind of treatment, potential treatment that you can have, but your lungs have to be really kind of shriveled or hardly usable before they can, can you consider a lung transplant. And it's particularly a bit difficult for women because we have a different frame and where a lot of lungs come from deceased male donors and they're pretty big compared to the average woman. I'm only like five foot, five and a half. If I had a donor that's over six foot, they have to try to really get the lungs to fit in to a smaller cavity. So there's always challenge that way. So I knew that when I started to embark on a whole plant-based diet and I found out about it, I was blind and I happened to just turn on the TV. And I think there might've been some uh, higher power there that that had me just have that on because there was a gentleman called George Stropanopoulos who is kind of like your Larry King's, uh, you know, Stephen Colbert's like well-known. And he did these, what they called red chair interviews. And uh, he came on one night before he did the interview. And I just heard his voice and he said, I saw a documentary Forks Over Knives, changed my life, it might change yours. That's all I'm going to say. Well, I was super curious and I had just received a grant for a special program, a voice activated program for the computer from CNIB, the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. And I was in the process of writing goodbye stories to my kids because I thought I want to leave them having worked with teens for many years and then adults for many years. I wanted to leave them with 
with, you know, a little bit of guidance along the way. And uh, I wanted them to have that as a part of a memory of me. And so I went up and I found out about Forks Over Knives. I contacted uh, the producers of it, said, when will it come to Canada? Because I'm in Calgary, Alberta, which Mm -hmm. if people know it's in the western part of the country, we have a huge country, it's the western part, and it's cow country. In fact, Calgary's called Cowtown. There's lots of ranches around here. Alberta is number one for beef. That's their recognized whole identity practically as a province, you know. And uh, so it became really, I was like really curious. So it was actually about a year later that they uh, said, oh, it's coming to Calgary. Well, of all things, it was in an alternative theater kind of thing where I had to walk up two flights of stairs. So if you can imagine, there I was on oxygen, I was having to, I was blind, and I had to walk up two flights of stairs, which was like, for me, like climbing Mount Everest. It was like really tough. But we ended up going three times to that movie. And we took our kids. (laughs) Yeah, we took our kids because we wanted to show them this is how we're going to eat. My husband and I were sitting there, we were just like overwhelmed what Dr. Esselstyn was talking about. He's from the Cleveland Clinic. He's featured in the film, Dr. Campbell, T. Colin Campbell. And, you know, he's a biochemist that has written over 350 peer-reviewed papers from Cornell University. And it was just like, the science was mind-blowing. My husband's sitting beside me with a PhD in theoretical chemistry. So he appreciated science as well. (laughs) And it was kind of like, we went, we have to try this. Because to me, there was no morbidity, there was no risk of harm, this wasn't a fad diet, you could only possibly get better. And I realized that if I ever wanted to receive lungs, I had to have the rest of my body as healthy as possible, because they're not going to give it to someone who has cancer, for example, they're, they're going to feel like they've got to give that organ, it's a very precious gift. They've got to give it to someone who's going to take good, really good care of it and can last as long as possible. So I was a non-smoker already, non-drinker. So I thought I just got to, you know, and I was losing weight. And I thought I've got to do this. So mm-hmm. I started that and I went actually down to John McDougall's program. He had a five-day program that we could afford. In the and Yes. And we went down there in 2012, in December of 2012, which was a perfect time to start a whole plant-based diet. Some people go, you're crazy. Christmas. Yeah. Cause holiday time is, I call it the yes season. Yes to this and that, and all the junk you can like, you know, right. All the candies and like, maybe you never have chocolate covered candy, you know, nuts or something during the year, but all of a sudden they show up at Christmas, all these goodies show up at Christmas for sure. And I thought if I can get through this season, I can get through anything. So we started it literally December 1st, 2012. What were some of the main things that you learned from the Medugal program that you could share with our listeners? What were some of the, well, one of the things was that he, he actually sets his buffet up in the way we should eat. So he starts it from, you know, like a kind of soup, salad, and then main course, and then grains, and then dessert is over to the side. So you're kind of, and that's how we would set up our potlucks as well in the community is we would do that and encourage people to eat off the main buffet as much as possible. And then if they want have some dessert, whereas if I've gone to other vegan 
potlucks where people are just loading as much as they can, as you know, as high as they can, and they might have two or three desserts. So like, how, I thought, how do you even know you're going to be hungry for that? So it's really following, like, you know, filling up with the high nutrient density, but low calorie. And as you go along. And so that's, I mean, those are some of the things I learned that way, how to cook oil free and realize that it's actually easier and cheaper and it's easier on your cookware and your, your, your sinks to, to not have the oil in it. I also realized that meals can be very simple, like beans and rice and, you know, some arugula and, and uh, salad greens, and you've got a meal in no time. It doesn't have to be this really hard thing. And I did realize that once you start to read labels, have the power of reading labels and ingredients, you know, you read the label first as a check and you go, oh, this is way too much fat because it should be three grams or less per serving. And you, you kind of go, okay, uh, there's no point in going into the ingredients. But if you see something that's below that, then you look at the ingredients and say, well, what's really in it and everything. It's very powerful because people can say anything about anything on the outside. You really want to know what's on the inside. And I also learned that 70% uh, salt is often not unusual for eating out. So I had to find ways to eat out where I found out like, look, get a Wendy's potato, ask them to keep it in the foil so it'll stay really nice and moist. And then get a garden green salad with no cheese on it because they didn't used to put cheese on, but now they do. Trying to add it kind of like they put cheese and bacon on everything. Mm -hmm. Right. It helps sell. And you've got a meal on the go and it tastes good. And that potatoes can be incredibly uh, satisfying. Like it, they did a st study in Australia where they looked at buffets that people were eating and they measured it and how often they go back. And people had potatoes was the number one most satiating thing of all. And okay. that you Nutritious. don't need very much protein either. That was the other thing, only seven to 10% protein max, um, that we're too much focused on a single nutrient where we need that rainbow on our plate. And so, it's so much more colorful way to eat too. Mm -hmm. You eat with our eyes, but you mentioned we before do. that you were already vegetarian. So what did you find were some of the main challenges going more plant-based and what sort of results did you see from that? Well, I think the first challenge was to recognize how bad cheese was. So what I had to do in my head, because it's very tasty and it's easy, you don't think, hey, you don't see any cows getting really hurt, you don't think, or any of that stuff. But we now know that um, dairy agriculture is kind of be very cruel, actually. However, so what I had to do is I had to decompose, deconstruct, I guess, the cheese block. So if I looked at it, and I, I just would think about that. I don't know if anybody remembers those boxes of Crisco, where they're kind of like in a really big, as if they are like a big thing of butter, they're in a blue box, and they you measure out for making pies and stuff. It's a Crisco vegetable lard kind of thing. And I, so I would imagine that's what really his cheeses can be 70% fat, and load it with salt is I just imagine, was I prepared, I'd say to myself, am I prepared to eat a box of Crisco lard right there, like vegetable lard, and, and then open a salt shaker and sprinkle salt all over it? Would I really eat that? 
And when I had to look at it that way and deconstructing it, what it really was, when you're having 70% fat, it wasn't worth it. The 30% that wasn't was not worth the 70% I'd have to eat to get to that. And so that was really helpful for me. And I had to face the fact that I'm not going to have the same taste sensate like experiences. Like, you know, I can make a so-called cheese sauce out of potatoes and carrots and make it look like a Wendy's thick sauce, but it's not going to taste the same as cheese. But your taste buds adapt. That was the thing I was really shocked at. Within 30 days, you lose your sensation for salt. And, and Dr. Elson would say within 90 days, you lose your fat craving. And so it was a matter of going. So one of the things that McDougal suggested, he said, like, don't give this just two weeks trial. He said, give it a few months. And so I went, uh, December 1st is when we started. And so I said, okay, April 8th is my birthday. I'm going to not, I'm going to promise myself anything I want to eat <laughs> April 8th. And I will tell you, I never used to go to bed thinking about food, <laughs> dreaming <laughs> about food, but I would wake up the first few weeks kind of like, I want an ice cream Sunday or a banana split, or I want whatever. But then what would happen is, it came to my birthday coming around. I was feeling so much better, even though I couldn't exercise right away. I was losing weight. I was getting stronger because at one point when I first started there, I was blind. I couldn't stand at the kitchen island for more than two minutes. So I'd have to sit in the dining room and I would cut my fingers sometimes because mushrooms were really hard to cut. And I never knew being blind that they had such a thing as sliced mushrooms. Because they weren't around when I was sighted. I didn't know that even existed. And so I, when I discovered that they had sliced mushrooms, then I got sliced mushrooms. It was a lot easier. Until <laughs> I got much more, more skilled in my knife handling. And then I slowly found myself. I was able to stand at the island. I was slowly able to start walking around. I was slowly able to start doing more exercise and then my sight started to come back. So within 15 months, I got my sight back. That's amazing. And I was shocked. And that was after five years of blindness. Wow. You know? So I'm just cognizant of the time. I feel that we could keep talking yes. and hearing more. But just to recap, so it started out with dizziness. And then you were diagnosed with diabetes. And then the blindness. And then you had other health complications and you were diagnosed yes. with this rare disease. And this was back in, it sounded like um, early 2000 2012 and 12. And when today it's 2022. 22. And I was not, I mean, and the, the support group that my husband and I were involved in, many of the patients sadly have died. I've gone to a lot of funerals. That's so and even though people, and here's, here's the kicker, even though people saw that I was getting better because at one point I was even in a wheelchair, you know, and then another graduate to a walker and, and stuff like that. Even though people saw the change and I was off oxygen and I got my sight back, they were not interested in what I was doing. And even my doctors, there's not one doctor who said, would you be willing to talk to another patient? Would you be willing to share our story with your, our colleagues? No one. And I've had five doctors consistently in my That's surprising. Um, life. Not one of them has uh, done that. 
Although it was interesting, I have a friend who's a pharmacist in the community, and she said she's found the same thing. She's had people come back, even talk about reducing a brain tumor. One, one of her patients, the doctor was not interested in what she was doing. That's very But all we have surprising. to do is go to a hospital, though, and take a look at some of the food that's being served in the, in the public cafeteria and for the staff. And it's not necessarily a healthy alternative. Hopefully these days, I feel like more and more people's stories getting shared. I know I've seen and heard about your story and others, and I feel hopefully that there's becoming more awareness. And I think people, that's where us being our own advocates, we're going to go out searching. We're not going to just leave it to the medical team to tell us. We need to get in the driver's seat ourselves. You know, a lot of times in the medical profession, sadly, depending on the doctor, if they're not a whole person practitioner, you're often sitting in the back seat. And sometimes with your illness, you have to sit in the front passenger seat because the illness needs attention and you got to, you know, it's your companion. And there are days like I still have what we call in our family a pajama day where I'm, <laughs> my energy is lower and I have to just be respectful of that. Um, but I had to remember, guess what? I was tempted of those pajama days when I was totally well, not disease free, because you just get tired. Your body says, hey, slow down a little, listen to me. And, but most of the time, I want to be in that driver's seat and be able to say, and that's what I found is so powerful about a whole plant based lifestyle. You are in the driver's seat, and there is hope, and there is possibility. And you are doing everything possible to take away worry from those around you that love you and worry for yourself. You're staying right in the now instead of saying, oh, my gosh, what will my future look like? You can't do anything in the future. You only can do something in the now and and noticing that now. And that's part of psychological flexibility, noticing what the opportunities are right here in the now, noticing that you'll have difficult thoughts, feelings even sensations. And yet those don't have to direct your life. You can just be have a willingness to be aware of them. And uh, then say, what do I want to do? What do I need to do right now? It sounds like it's that combination of psychological flexibility, meaning being in the present moment and just being aware of what's important to us and how we can address our challenges coupled with that whole plant-based diet and lifestyle um, that seems to have really worked for you. And even for me, I won't ever be able to leave my kids a lot of um, financial wealth just because I've had interruptions in my career and that kind of thing. But I can leave them with a legacy of their own health so that they don't have to at 45 be going, I've got high cholesterol, I've got high blood pressure. I could be on the verge of a heart attack and live a life that, you know, they're rusting out rather than living. And so that's really important to me. And, and now I, I'm actually able to, I have a private practice where I, do clinical counseling, as well as I do some whole plant-based coaching. So that's at towardmoves.com if someone's interested. But I ask people, I know I, I may get calls from different parts of the country and in the United States. So I ask people to email me at kate at towardmoves.com if they're 
interested in reaching out to me and be patient with me because sometimes there's a real influx of people trying to ask questions right away. Well, thank you so much for sharing that information sure. and your story. And you're such a beautiful person inside Aww. and out. So thank you so Thanks, much for Steph. joining us today. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for this opportunity to be with you and your listening audience. This episode was hosted by myself, Stephanie Nishi, and Clint Stamatovich is our audio engineer. This podcast featured royalty-free music from freesound.com. A very special thanks to our guest, Kate McGooey-Smith, for speaking with us and sharing her story. And of course, thank you for listening. The discussion today surrounded Kate's personal story and experience. Listeners should seek their own individual healthcare advice as needed. And if looking for healthcare professionals that practice plant-based, there is a directory of Canadian whole food plant-based health professionals on the Plant-Based Canada website, which may help get you started. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate health professionals and the public on the evidence behind plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website at www.plantbasedcanada.org and stay up to date by following us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org. Until next time.